Welcome to All We Hear is Purple, we're the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I'm Andrew Berg, and after a couple weeks of scheduling problems and technical problems and every other problem that we could come up with, we are back to talk about Husky football, undefeated, top 10 in the country, Husky football, and here to do that with me is Coach B. Coach, tell me quickly, when was the last time you remember being this excited about a Husky football team? Hey, Andrew. Um, good to be back. Um, 2016 Stanford. Okay. That's yeah. Probably that's a good, good one to throw out. I, I actually, I, I, I don't know. Maybe this is, maybe I'm, maybe this is revisionist history, but I don't think I ever thought we were as good during the Chris Peterson uh, college football playoff in New Year's Day game run from 2016 to 2018 as i i do now um another way of saying that is i don't know maybe that the top end of the competition is not quite as good right now as ohio state and um alabama were those years but i feel like we're a lot closer to the number one two three teams in the country this year than we were then maybe that's maybe that's pollyanna-ish but i'm excited about it yeah i i mean I, I definitely agree that I feel just something about the vibe this year feels different where, you know, our competition that we're, you know, kind of seeing across the country for the, the, those top four spots in the playoff, like Georgia seems eminently beatable. I mean, they were playing a really close game. They were what tied deep into the fourth quarter with Auburn. Yeah. And Auburn. Looks. Auburn, who had to sneak by Cal. Exactly. Obliterated. Exactly. Yes. So by the transitive exactly. property, we're very clearly demonstrably better than Georgia. No one can argue this. I think yeah, it's the, the only property. reasonable outcome. Yeah. Yeah. We're like 28 points better than Georgia, basically. Yeah. Right? On a neutral field. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, we haven't exactly. talked for a couple of weeks, but I, well, let's, let's kind of uh, cover new business first. Uh, we're coming off of as over the top as we are right now, coming off of probably the least uh, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping performance of the year against Arizona. Before we get into the details of the game, just the, the game was closer than expected. There was an 18-point line. The Huskies won by seven. Overall, was this a good or a bad game for the Huskies? I think that for those that watch the game, you'll come away with, you know, definitely some things worth sort of worrying about like the defense not suffocating a Arizona offense that was playing with a backup quarterback and running back um but at the same time you know Pac-12 after dark road game into the desert you know every year there's you know winners find a way to win those close games right yeah. So I, you know, think it was a well. I think a lot of people, myself included, thought you know this is a well-timed wake-up call game. You know, we found a way to win. 
we know how to win those close games where, you know, we're not playing third string guys, you know, at the end of the third quarter, right? We we have the stamina to keep up that level of intensity through the whole game. You know, there's definitely ways of spinning it both ways. Um, but, you know, it, it was closer than expected, but, you know, it, a, a win's a win's a win. Yeah, and, you know, I think the way the game broke down, it very easily could have been a 14-point win instead of a 7-point win. Like, they were kind of just decided we're just going to sit on the ball at the end. They Arizona scored late, did not recover the onside kick. Um, yes, it was a 7-point win. I never felt like the result was in much doubt. The Huskies were very comfortable for most of the first half, and then you know, maybe didn't have the most efficient drives early in the second half, let Arizona stay in the game a little bit more, but I never felt like it was actually in doubt. And you mentioned this is a game in the desert and this has been a house of horrors forever. There's never been an easy game on the road against Arizona or Arizona state, just winning it and winning it in a way where it wasn't ever at risk of becoming a catastrophe is a great success. I think in a way, uh, I, I'm not going to ever be upset about a conference road win against a team like that. And Arizona's not a bad team. Even, you know, maybe if we look back on this and say, like, maybe Noah Fafita was a lot worse than we thought he was, or maybe he's a lot better than we thought he was. But either way, Arizona's been kind of turning the corner, and they have a lot more depth than they did a year or two ago. So really not all that bad. Um, I, I did want to – They definitely yeah. have some, like, star players on that team, like, no doubt. Like – yeah. I, um, Titular McMillan, McMillan is yeah. one of my – probably if you if you take away the upper crust of the conference, the, you know, Oregon, USC, UW, and Utah, he might be my favorite player to watch for the rest of the conference. He's he's incredible. Yeah, and, and they also have some pretty solid, like, offensive linemen, right? Like, uh, I don't remember his first name, but Morgan, their left tackle – you know, he, he's getting some NFL buzz, too. So it's it's not like they're an untalented team, right? They might not have the top-to-bottom depth or the top-to-bottom quality, but they certainly have the stars to make it interesting, you know, and, you know, have a puncher's chance. So they're, they're a solid team where the resume might not look that great, but, you know, they're, they're competitive. And, again, we – Things go horribly wrong every time we go to the desert and nothing went horribly wrong in this game. And that in itself is a success. Uh, I did want to talk a little bit more about Dylan Johnson, particularly. It seems like as the year has gone on, he's been both more effective and more important. Uh, the the effectiveness, I think, has a lot to do with his health as he's rounded into form after playing hurt in the first game and missing the second. But it, it, since then, his has really looked like a different player, stronger, better cuts, more decisive. But the other part of that is this is not a team designed to run the ball. Uh, we have one of the lowest rates of calling run plays relative to the expectation for down and distance. It does seem like as the year goes on, there are going to be games when being able to run the ball consistently, maybe even giving him the ball upwards of 20 times is going to be important for our ability to adapt and win. What are your thoughts on Dylan Johnson? And do you think, it's possible to win a game with him as the bell cow uh, leading the offense. If we, if it becomes necessary. Yeah, I think, I think so. There's a couple of different things there, right? I think Dylan Johnson was 
and is a great talent, right? We all had high expectations for him heading into the season. I think the staff uh, and the media kind of understated some of the the health pieces. You know, he was coming off of a knee injury from Mississippi State and early on, right? So, I, you know, he wasn't fully healthy at the beginning of the season. Um, and I think we're seeing him, you know, progress uh, health-wise. I think we're also seeing him progress as far as familiarity within the offense and the offense also catering to him, but I'll touch on that in a second. And, you know, building that chemistry with his blockers and and the panics when it comes to receiving the ball. But um, I think the key point that doesn't get talked about enough, and I've, I've mentioned it in like film study and, you know, with other dog pound writers is that we're sort of figuring out what works best for him within the offense too. You know, I think, um, I think it was Boise state. He was, he played and we ran a lot of like off tackle perimeter runs, things like that, where he just, it didn't look like he was comfortable, you know, running those types of plays. And then, you know, a combination of both more games under the belt, understanding how he works, right? Because he also didn't really get a chance to practice most of the offseason uh, because of the injury and the health. But we're, we're Grubbs tailoring the run schemes around what he's good at, right? I mean, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, downhill, shoot him out of a cannon, you know, full head of steam, square to the line of scrimmage. He's going to, he's a load to bring down, right? I mean, he's, he's a pretty big back, right? You know, six foot, 215, 220. Uh, with some burst and not necessarily like the greatest, like stop on a dime, change of direction type of skill set that we usually associate with good pass catching running backs. And so we've, we've kind of shifted away from some of the wide zone stretch runs to like downhill counter gap plays inside zone, moving guys off the ball and just letting him like gash right up the middle. Right. That's that's where his big run against uh, was it Michigan State came on a gap play. His big run uh, this past week where he carried two or three defenders with him for an extra couple of yards that came on a downhill run play. And, you know, now that we're kind of feeling, hey, this is this is what he's good at. And this is how we can kind of strategize our play calling around that talent. I think we're starting to see the, the makings of a blueprint where he could carry the offense if the defense, uh, an opposing defense, sells out to stop the passing attack. Yeah, that's. It, it seems like inevitably we will get there at some point this year. I, I I have very little doubt that there will be a game where him being able to break a couple twenty yard runs might be the difference between winning and losing. Another place on the field, and we're going to get into. The, the passing offense and, and how beautiful that has been in a while. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk about this particular game, how the defense played. It was a the typical bend but don't break approach, but there was a lot of bending. Uh, and what I mean by that is there was very little havoc. There weren't really stuffing the run, forcing turnovers, getting pressure. Uh, it looked a little bit too much like the 2022 version of the defense. Do you agree with that sentiment or was I, was there something I was missing here? And, and if so, what do you think are the things that need to change to get back to the, the rays of light we were seeing earlier in the season? 
Yeah, I think there's, again, a couple different ways of looking at it. I, I agree the defense didn't meet the expectations that we had heading into this game, considering redshirt freshman backup quarterback for Arizona, um, considering backup running back who I didn't really know um, what to expect out of their run game and things like that. We We have been looking strong in the run game, things like, you know, and we didn't get a whole lot of those impact plays, you know, sacks, turnovers, things of that nature, or at least not the clip that many of us have started to expect out of this defense. Um, I think the positive spin on things is that I don't think that the defensive strategy was bend but don't break. It's just what ended up playing out on the field. I mentioned it today in uh, my film study article where I broke down one defensive play. It was uh, third quarter, third quarter passing situation, third down. Cameron Fabikulanen um, came hot off the edge. He whiffed. Noah Fafita kind of did a Russell Wilson-esque backdoor escape out of the pocket and fired a pass to the tight end for a first down, right? But on that play, we call it a very aggressive, like, uh, zone blitz pressure. And, you know, looked like we were stacking the line of scrimmage, all-out blitz, man coverage behind it, we're trying to create havoc. And the fact that we stopped them, for, I mean, granted, it was for the first down. They, they got the first down conversion. But, you know, when we have that type of aggressive look, trying to, you know, we're, we're looking for those turnovers or the, you know, those impacts, tackles for loss, but we still, you know, prevent an explosive play on their end and things like that, where, you know, I think we're still going for that type of havoc. So, you know, you, you can look at it like we're going for it. We're trying to stay aggressive. We're not getting it. But at the same time, we're not, you know, getting hit with a double-edged sword of giving up like a touchdown pass or something. So things things to – different ways of looking at it there. But, that's fair. I, but I guess if, if that's the case, what is preventing us from getting home on those plays and what do we need to do? Arizona is not the team – not the most difficult offense that we're going to play this year. If we're, you know, two weeks from now facing Bo Nix and a, a really good offensive line uh, and Bucky Irving, like what, what needs to change to create negative plays for, for a good offense when we're not doing that against a middle of the pack one. Yeah. I, I in, in my opinion, I think it comes down to execution on a lot of things, which is kind of a cop out on what things to fix. There's not a whole lot that we can do to fix that. Um, in season yeah. at least, but you know, the fact that our scheme works and we saw something in their pass protection adjustments and calls where we called the right play and the right, you know, disguise and pressure um, to get uh cam fab, clean off the edge nobody blocked him he was he was right there in Fafita's grill like immediately off the snap right um so the opportunities there we just gotta you know actually execute the play make the tackle in the backfield um and on the other side in the coverage piece of that you know there's we had the right number of underneath defenders for that play we had five guys in zone coverage 
I think we overran our zone coverage a little bit. I think Bruner, I couldn't quite tell in the replay, but Bruner overran his spot. If he had settled down a little bit earlier, he might have been able to make the tackle or, you know, make a play on the ball in the air um, before, you know, they got the first down conversion. Um, it, it, and I went back and looked at the, I think it was the Boise State game where Cam Fab got his first pick of the season, actually. And it was a almost identical play or, you know, a defensive call where, again, we had a linebacker that kind of overset their, their zone drop and almost gave a, a big play. But the difference there was just QB play. Um, I think Fafita is actually a pretty good quarterback from the flashes I saw. That was a, a really good play made by him on that particular uh, first down conversion. Uh, that I don't think we'll see consistently across the board from every quarterback we play. Um, but maybe, I mean, I know Cam, uh, uh, Caleb Williams and Bo Nix probably could make that kind of a play. But, you know, the, the difference between an interception and a first down was razor thin, right? I mean, I think we're right there. It's just maybe tweaking our technique a little bit, playing a little bit more discipline, just executing a little bit better is kind of the best I could come up with. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I think there's sometimes that is it, the, the, the approach is right and you didn't finish it. And a couple of the things you mentioned in there, like uh, this isn't the first time Bruner has overrun a play on a passing down and just made a mistake because he was very aggressive. That's kind of who he is. Is that the first time where, you know, we get pressure on somebody and aren't wrapping up, finishing the tackle. And like you said, it does seem like Fafita is a little bit ahead of schedule in terms of his moxie or his, his confidence being able to oh, yeah. uh, escape tackles and fight through things where some guys might just get a little bit nervous and, and go down at the first hint of contact. So probably a lot of little things, but it, it is a little frustrating that uh, weren't able to, to more assertively put the game away earlier uh, before we move <laughs> off the Arizona game, just a couple quick uh, other mentions. Um, the the great Devin Culp catch in the third quarter. It's it's he's put together such a funny career of his his greatest highlights are incredibly <laughs> difficult catches, but then he also has some incredibly obvious drops on the other hand. So like somebody who rises to the degree of difficulty of the play, but give him lots of credit here. And then some of the goofy wing T type formations that Ryan Grubb had lined up in the red zone. Uh, also fun, although maybe got a little too cute in the fourth quarter and they couldn't close out the drive in the red zone. Uh, but altogether, I, you know, like I said before, I'm never going to look an Arizona win uh, it gift horse in win in the mouth. Yeah. It, it, there's certainly things to take away from this game that the coaching staff will go back and be like, yep. Good job on this. Got to work on this. On to the next game. Yeah, uh, let's let's take our quick break now. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about where the team is as a whole since we've been been away a couple weeks. I wanted to talk about some of the progress that we saw in the uh, last couple weeks before the Arizona game and how exciting some of that that had been to watch. Uh, but also talk a little bit about the rest of the Pac-12 and and what's coming up next. So stick around, and we will be right back. Thanks for sticking with us. As mentioned before the break, I wanted to do something along the lines of a halfway point check-in for the dogs. Uh, we're five games into the season. I think everybody looked at the schedule coming in and said, 
if we can get through these five, if we don't stub our toe, it's going to be very exciting going into week seven, coming off the bye against Oregon. And we're there. Uh, Oregon and UW will both be undefeated heading into uh, that, that rivalry game. Both teams will be ranked in the top 10, barring some very strange circumstances over the next 10 days. Uh, but let's. there are a couple of things we pr- should probably touch on for how the season has gone to get to that point. And I think the most important one is just what a well-oiled machine the passing game has become. And I think it all starts with the offensive line. I, tell me if you agree with that or not, but it, it, I've been so impressed with the pass protection Michael Penix has got. And we've got these outstanding wide receivers, a very cerebral and physically capable quarterback. But the fact that he has so much time and is so unbothered unlocks so many opportunities. Like, what's going on? Why is this pass protection so incredibly good? And uh, how like how, how much freedom does that give an offensive play caller like Ryan Grubb when he's, he's scheming the rest of the offense around it? I think it's... I think there's shout outs. They got to go out to multiple groups here, right? Like obviously offensive line has looked phenomenal, right? The blocking has been amazing. Just picked up where they left off last year, despite change at the interior three offensive line positions. Right. Um, But even, you know, from week one to now, they've had constant shuffle along the interior offensive line, whether it be Mateo Mele's, you know, season-ending injury a couple weeks ago and a redshirt freshman, Parker Brailsford, playing absolutely out of his mind, (laughs) right? I mean, it is, like, he has surpassed all expectations, right? I mean, we've we've seen a similar situation, right? Undersized, redshirt freshman, offensive lineman playing on the interior and Nick Harris, right? Yeah, yeah. And... I, I think we saw, you know, shades of that early on in his first start. You know, he looked solid, but, you know, we were kind of wondering, hey, you know, maybe he'll develop and pick up the rest of the offense and be able to shift into the center spot, you know, that he's projected to next year or something. Nope. In like what, week three or whatever, yeah, week yeah. three or four, steps right up, gets th- thrown into the fire and has done a great job. And then we also had injuries, you know, Julius Buell got banged up against Michigan State, um, and Garen Hatchett has had to step up. Landon Hatchett's rotated in quite a bit along the offensive line, you know, true freshman um, as far as the younger Hatchett. And it's been pretty consistent for the most part. I mean, there's certainly been times where pressure's gotten in, um, but Coach Huff has done a great job in – preparing his offensive line, coaching them up, getting them ready for, you know, any situation and and specific to the opponents, right? He's done a great job in really preparing not just the stars, but the the full too deep to step up to the challenge. And so kind of circling back a little bit, there have been times where, you know, there has been pressure that comes in from the defense and gotten into the backfield a little bit. And that's and Penix has done a great job of playing cerebrally, kind of like you mentioned earlier, and seeing the field, understanding where his checkdowns are, who's he responsible for, where do I go in these uh, situations where the protection doesn't hold up quite as well, right? I mean, so so he has a, a big part in making sure he stays upright, you know, and, and keeps the offense on track. 
and taking what the defense gives him and playing within the offensive scheme, right? And I think overall, all those pieces, the great protection out front, Penix understanding the protection, understanding the defense, understanding the offense, and that's been able – that's allowed Grubb uh, to take full advantage of all of the phenomenal talent at the skill positions and really raise the ceiling on on what our offense can do so far this season. Yeah, that's and and I think it's fair to point out that like Romo Dunze has been tremendous, just like absolutely meeting every challenge and, and hitting his potential in every way. And and we haven't seen as much of Jalen McMillan lately, but Jalen Polk's been great. Uh, even seeing the tight ends at times, Jeremy Bedard looks ahead of schedule. None of this happens without so much opportunity, so much time to make plays downfield. So much, uh, like so much of it is unlocked. Uh, by Penix remaining so calm. And I think I'm I'm maybe overly sensitive to this after watching years of quarterbacks who erred on the side of bailing out of the pocket too early. And mm-hmm. Penix is so peaceful and tranquil and just waiting. He knows what's going to happen. You know, some of this is maturity. Some of this is trusting his own ability. Some of this is having spent four or five years in different versions of a of similar type of offense. He's just so comfortable and he knows what's supposed to happen. He's waiting for it to happen. And then he knows that he has the arm strength and the uh, movement ability to, to execute when it, ha- when it is ready for it to happen. It's not like he sees it and then can't make the play. I, I don't think there's been a single time this year where he was just unable to make a play that was there. Mm-hmm. So it, you put all those things together and it, it really is like a rare thing to get all of those pieces working together. I will say that <laughs> there is a counterbalance to this, which is that uh, this well-oiled machine is committing a terrifying number of penalties. Is this kind of just like a, a necessary evil given the way that they're playing? I, I can't think of a reason why it would be, but I can't also can't think of a better explanation for why the Huskies are getting like 10, 12, 14 penalties every week. Yeah, it's a, you know, I don't want to say alarming, but it is kind of an alarming trend, at least something worth mentioning, right? I mean, this is not the look of a championship caliber team as far as discipline goes, right? I mean, there's certainly some where, you know, as I go and watch the replay for film study, where I'm looking back, I'm like, really? You're going to call a hold on that? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think sure. it was like, I mean, obviously every every fan's going to say that, right? That and defensive pass interference, right? Are the two calls where you're like, really? You're going to you gonna pick on us for that? Um, but there's, there are certainly a couple, and it even got some traction on the internet, like on Twitter or whatever, where, there have been guys like Duke uh, Duke Mannyweather, the uh, uh, offensive line guru, who kind of looked at one of Roy Fatanu's holding penalties. I think it was against Michigan State, where he was, it was so a very dominant. dubious one against Michigan State early in the game. I know exactly which yeah. one. If that's the yeah, one, yeah, where he was so dominant in his pass protection, playing so physical against the defensive end, where he ended up with a pancake on a pass play, um, where. I think the ref just threw a flag, just like how would you possibly be able to get a pancake on this play if you 
weren't holding or doing something illegal. Yeah. Where, yeah. I mean, there's, there's certainly some of those um, sprinkled in there. Um, but there are an alarming amount of like face mask penalties, unnecessary roughness, you know, some personal fouls that, you know, I think their impacts have been more overstated than, than the, it would seem, right? I mean, like after the Arizona game, you would have thought we might have had a 15, 20 penalties, but it was at crucial times where it was just kind of like a backbreaker on some drives, right? We had them in third down and stopped them, but, you know, the penalty yeah. extended the drive where they just kind of seemed more impactful or more numerous than what actually happened. Um, I know uh, there was at least one defensive pass interference where um, similar situation, third down, probably would have stopped them had it been just an incompletion. But the corners are kind of making a business decision a little bit, and I don't know if that's necessarily coaching or if that's just something they do and they do it naturally where – there, there have been times where our DBs are just straight up burned, right? I mean, the receiver would have had a walk-in touchdown if they caught the ball and ran with it, right? So the PI 15 yards, you know, I, I know, uh, what was it? It was the last touchdown this past week that Arizona scored where it was a PI in the end zone, and yeah. it was a jump that ball. that was Jackson, wasn't it? You know, not to rag on the guy, but it, Probably would have, and that's a pretty it's, good guess. I, yeah, I, I, not to rag on the guy is fair, but it, it has not been a strong, um, he's not lived up to the hype from uh, fall camp and spring practices. He's really not looked like quite ready to be a starter yet. I get that the physical tools are there, uh, but with, with the lights are on when he's going against live action, it's, it's, there are too many mistakes so far. Yeah. And we, we have ragged on him for all these. PIs, right? But they're kind of a byproduct of him getting burned and then having to make up for it and getting extra physical and grabby and and you know making the PI downfield, right? So I think yeah, hasn't really lived up to the hype and the expectations that came out of camp. But at the same time, I don't know if he he really would have been a starter here anyways had uh Devon Banks not been not gotten hurt early on, you know, out for the season already, right? Um, Banks looked like a revelation in the first two games of the season, right? I mean... As as Jackson's backup, but yeah, it did seem like he was about to unseat him or had already done it yeah. when he got hurt, yeah. Exactly. Um, now, that being said, I think uh, Thaddeus Dixon has looked pretty good, considering he's yeah, new I to mean, the program. More of so, a I mean, boomer bust type player, it seems like. He's... he's we were talking earlier about like sometimes you take a risk and we're not always getting the payoff on those risks, but it seems like he is a guy who is willing to take a risk and potentially get the payoff for it, which I think we could use a little bit more of. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think it, you know, shouldn't, we definitely need to mention that injuries have been an issue not just on the offensive line, but also in the secondary throughout this season, right? And I don't think at this point in the season, this is the starting lineup we were planning on having, right? Yeah. You know, based true. on early returns. So, you know, we already mentioned Banks out for the season when it looked like his uh, stock was trending way up over the first two games um, where he, there's a pretty good chance he would have unseated Jackson um, had 
uh, he stayed healthy. At the same time, Asa Turner also been out for a couple of weeks. You know, uh, I know there are a number of people who are still kind of underwhelmed by his play uh, when he was healthy, given that he's what a fifth, sixth year player, highly coveted four star DB coming out of high school. Um, but the veteran presence there, you know, has been missed at times, I think. And I think uh, he's still a value add, you know, when he comes back into the rotation or, you know, the starting lineup. Um, I know Cam Fab, again, we, we mentioned him earlier. He's really elevated his game over this past offseason. He's got a couple of picks, looks really solid in coverage um but he he too missed some time you know so far this year so i think you know we're definitely not playing our best but i think part of that is we're also not our healthiest not playing our best because our best aren't playing as the exactly. guy from mystery men might say i before we go into the rest of the pack 12 i wanted to briefly talk about uh, a couple of uh, recruits that committed over the last couple of weeks uh, again, we haven't had a chance to talk since uh, the the two most recent commitments. One was kind of long foreseen and, and anticipated. The other was very much out of the blue. Uh, Huskies got Joshua Lair, a very physical defensive back out of Texas, and David Boyajan. And I'm grateful that I'll have five to six years to learn how to pronounce that last name. <laughs> a projectable kind of raw under the radar offensive tackle from Southern California. Uh, any initial impressions of either of these two players, uh, things that you've seen on film or, or read about that, that pique your interest? Yeah, I haven't been able to do my full on deep dive uh, into all their, their recruiting film and all that. But uh, like you said, physical player, Josh Lair out of Texas, um, really good projectable skill set. I think that we're still kind of seeing our, coaching staff make a transition and overhaul the roster in a more gradual way uh, in the secondary to kind of fit what they're trying to do here. Um, you know, we're still playing with a lot of recruits um, that were uh, brought into the program under the old staff working a slightly different scheme. Um, so I think he's going to be a key piece in that. And then as far as, um, Good old dad. I'm not going to try and pronounce the last name. Um, <laughs> like you said, big, toolsy, but you know more projectable than you know tools right now. You know, lots of talent, lots of upside. Um, I know that he's really taken to. I well, at least based on what I've read, he's uh, done a lot over the last year to really get himself into the right playing shape and really committed to. Um, being successful at the next level upon feedback from, from coaches and uh, his both his coaches and college coaches. So I know he's dropped quite a bit of weight, looking a lot more physical and athletic. And, um, you know, I think he's, he's a classic uh, Scott Huff type of offensive line recruit, you know, uh, maybe not super highly rated, not the four or five star guys, but definitely has the tools to play up to that type of level you know has good good size good length um the right mentality uh to, to play that and i think scott huff thinks very highly of his own ability to coach those types of guys up and, and i mean it's, it's proven out 
over the last what six seven years he's been our o-line coach so i think he'll probably try get fried at offensive tackle and if not bump him inside and he'll be a mauler yeah i mean huff has earned the benefit of the doubt the last couple of years uh developing players much better than what we'd seen in past seasons to a level where i'm, I'm kind of just happy to see uh the way that he's going to do it give him a chance to see what what he can do with a, a fairly raw project uh, because it's been working so well. How about outside of Montlake, rest of the conference, a couple storylines that have caught my eye. I, I wanted to touch on Washington State, undefeated so far, uh, win over Wisconsin, win over Oregon State, playing UCLA this weekend, which should be a very good game, but the rest of the schedule looks pretty favorable for WSU uh, heading into the Apple Cup. Does this team look like, for your money, the best bet to break into the top four of UW, USC, Oregon, and Utah? Or does that, I, I think we had all kind of penciled in Oregon State as that fifth team or 4B behind, you know, if, if one of those teams fell off and seems like Utah might be that one with Cam Rising still not returning. Uh, it, but are you thinking maybe WSU is a little bit ahead of where you expected uh, them to be coming into the year? Oh yeah, they've far exceeded um, even some pretty lofty expectations for them. Like uh, that coaching staff, you know, uh, Jake Dickert and and the rest of their staff have done a phenomenal job in putting together this team. I mean, they've had so much so much turnover both at at uh, both in the roster and on the staff. I mean, they've brought in a new, really young offensive coordinator i think his name is ben arbuckle or something like that he's one of the youngest coordinators in all of college football i think he's like in his late 20s or something like that but he's done a phenomenal job in you know piecing together a offense that was gutted at the skill positions um via you know portal defections and things like that in the offseason that really uh that you really could tell in their bowl game against fresno this past year um He's gotten Cam Ward, you know, really stepped up his game, coached him up. He is playing up to the level of expectations that we had that a lot of people had of him heading into last season when he transferred in from uh, what Incarnate Word at the FCS level. Yeah, I mean, yeah. last last off season they were like, "Hey, this guy could be like a NFL like first, second, third round talent. And then, you know, he kind of had a he had a solid season last year, but nothing like what he's playing at, you know, the level he's playing at right now. He is tremendous. He, it, both in the passing game and on the ground, he has been, uh, he, he, his game and improvement has elevated the ceiling uh, despite not having the wealth of talent at the skill positions that like, you know, a team like, us or USC or Oregon might have. And of course their defense is also playing very solid as we've come to expect over the last couple of seasons from them. So I definitely, well, I would definitely put their resume right now up there in like a top four in the conference. Right. I mean, they had the rank win over Wisconsin. They had their win against Oregon state, you know, in the head to head, um, and I think by the end of the season, you know, looking at their schedule right now, they're playing, I want to say right now, the next six games are all against teams. Uh, the Pac-12 schedule 
you know, the Pac-12 teams that aren't ranked right now. So, you know, they don't really have to face for the next four games or something like that. They have a stretch of games coming up here in the next month where they might be, you know, sniffing in the top 10 to 15 range in the AP yeah, poll. Yeah. And I'm not far yeah. out of it now. I think they might even be up to 16th or so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they're probably going to plateau somewhere on the high end, number 10, just because of all of the great teams around the country that certainly would be favored in a head-to-head matchup kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. But the resume, it's it's tough to deny that, right? And uh, depending how the rest of the season shakes out, we could have a fairly highly ranked um, matchup in the Apple Cup. Yeah, and hopefully Huskies keep up their end of the bargain with that tough stretch. That'll come later in the year with USC and Utah and Oregon still um, coming in relatively quick succession over the next few weeks. But there is a chance that could be, you know, kind of like the Gardner Minshew year where the Apple Cup has a lot riding on it for both teams. And we can actually spoil something for the Cougars for once on their on <laughs> all of our ways out of uh, the rivalry and the conference and what what have you. Uh, we talked a little bit about some of these other teams at the top of the conference, but it seems like right now I mentioned Cam rising has been out for Utah and that ultimately has kind of tanked their offense, cost them a game last week uh, against Oregon state. Uh, that kind of leaves UW Oregon and USC as the top three teams in the conference. And if you look around long enough, you'll see power rankings that put them in pretty much any order. Um, what would you do right now between those three? How would you rank them in terms of probability of uh, winning the conference and, or, qualifying for the CFP. Hmm. I think it's 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 certainly a top 3, right? That's the group at clearly head and shoulders above the rest of the conference. But I think it's actually a lot closer between UW and Oregon than it is those two to USC. And you know, I'm I might argue Oregon by a hair at the top just based on their talent, uh, just power rankings and likelihood of, you know, you, you play you play the same matchup a hundred times, they might mm-hmm. win 55 of them or something like that. They're certainly beatable, no doubt. I think we have a good chance against them, you know, uh, especially at home and, and things like that, you know, next week. But I think if you reran this, you know, this season with this these rosters and these, you know, opponents on NCAA or some video game like that, right? I think the odds would probably say they're probably the top team right now as far as um feeling. They're playing their offense has been explosive. Um I know that there's a lot of people that are point to Bo Nix having like one of the lowest average depths of throw, you know, kind of statistics, a lot of screens and, you know, horizontal passes and passes behind the line of scrimmage and things like that. But they certainly have the playmakers to make that work and still be explosive. Right. And their run game is really solid too. Um, And their defense has really stepped it up. I mean, I think they're, certainly playing more aggressively or their staff is calling the games more aggressively, uh, both play calling and when to rotate in the backups uh, in blowouts. So, I mean, on paper, they look like a really strong team. Um, 
if you don't watch the games. But even if you watch the games, I think there's they're high end talent. You know, they're probably the most balanced right now amongst the you know UW, Oregon, and USC trifecta at the top. Yeah, and I think when you yeah. when you're splitting on these fine margins, the specific matchups matter too because these teams are going to play each other, and how it mm-hmm. breaks down will have a lot to do with the matchups between them. And it does worry me a little bit that Oregon has done such a good job protecting Knicks and their secondary has been better this year than it was last year or in, in several of the recent years at, at creating turnovers, making plays, getting off the field, which are two areas that UW specifically has had trouble with. We need help rushing the passer. We've been great, obviously, against everybody else's secondary, but we haven't played a secondary that's been really effective in general. Uh, so we're, it's probably going to make us a little bit uncomfortable on both sides of the ball. Um, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get Oregon off the field. And I could see them kind of forcing us into that run uh, centric uh, offensive approach that we talked about earlier, which is going to make it a little bit more uncomfortable than we would probably like it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, kind of going back to the original question. Yeah. USC third by a decent margin right now. I think. Yeah. I think I agree with you. Their defense does not look good at all. How? What dirt does Alex Grinch have on Lincoln Riley. I mean, how does that guy still have a job? Yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't know. I, I don't have anything else to add there except that it just seems like the problems are getting better. It's And it's a lot of the same stuff. It's it's poor tackling in the secondary. It's blown coverages. It, these these guys who are, are super talented five-star athletes just aren't getting the job done. So I... I don't have a better answer. I wish I, I understood a little bit better because then I might be able to take his job, but it does not seem like <laughs> Alex Grinch is probably going to be the one who gets that, that thing turned around. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could probably do like 25% of his job for like 5% of his pay and would be pretty happy with that. Yeah. I'm not even sure I would get that far. I'll take, <laughs> if we do it together, I'll give you 90% of the 20% of the work and, and we'll split the pay. <laughs> I'm <laughs> getting into some very confusing math, uh, but let's wrap it up. Uh, it's been a, a good wide ranging free flowing conversation, but let's talk a little bit about um, non-football things of the week. Do you have anything uh, you want to recommend? We've had a couple weeks to to think it over. Have you uh, got outside the football bubble at any point in the last few weeks to recommend anything? Uh, in typical fashion, I am thoroughly unprepared to answer this, but, from what I understand, you have both a recommendation and a not recommendation. So I'll, oh, I'll do yeah. Well, I, I <laughs> as most of you know, I, I uh, live outside the U.S. now, but I am visiting, uh, coming to back to the U.S. for a wedding uh, over the weekend. I'm in Seattle at the moment. I was telling Coach and Producer Colin before we started recording that I, I somehow – somehow spent three hours waiting in line at thrifty car rental today at the, at SeaTac airport. So it just the, what little reach I have and what little spite uh, or what great spite uh, I carry with me. Uh, my recommendation would be to book with any other car rental agency. It was atrocious. <laughs> they had two, they had probably a hundred people in line and they had two people working at two of the six kiosks. They take reservations. The reservation requires you to put a pickup time. If you are asking me what time I'm picking up the car, you need enough people to facilitate people actually picking up those cars. This is wildly depressing. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things are hard here. 
but it's great to be back in Seattle. I got to eat his L's afterwards. Cheered me up. Ooh, there you go. All right. Well, thanks coach for, for sticking around and talking to us, uh, catching us up on the last three weeks of Husky football. I know we've got a bye week this week. We'll be back next week. I think we're going to do a deeper dive on recruiting what's left on the board, where we are right now and what we can expect between now and signing day. We also will have the Oregon game to look forward to in a little bit more depth as we started to preview here. We can always hope that Cody Pickett will be on the panel to discuss that with us. You never know what's going to happen. But in the meantime, thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs.